You're listening to Works of Justice, a podcast by PEN America. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your patience tonight. We're really excited about the special evening we have in store tonight. Um, my name is Tiffany Lee. I am the uh, Public Workshops and Events Coordinator here at AAWW. How many folks are here for the first time? Yay! I think it's like almost half, which always makes me really happy. Welcome to AAWW. For those of you who don't know about us, we're a literary nonprofit founded in 1991, um, dedicated to the dissemination and creation of Asian American literature. And in 2018, I am proud to say that AAWW staffers unionized and are represented by UAW Local 2110. Yay! <laughs> I'm gonna keep my intro super brief. I just wanna tell you a little bit about us and then we'll get started with the show, um, with the program, sorry. Um, you can find out more about us at our, on our website. We're at aaww.org. You can also find out about us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, and on our website and social media, you'll be able to find out about fellowships. We have three running fellowships. We also have two online magazines and a submittable if you're a writer. It's aaww.submittable.com. Um, and yeah, that's it. I just kind of wanted to give a brief uh, rundown of AAWW and hand it away to Kate Meisner, who is the Prison and Writing Justice Program Director. Everyone give Kate a hand. How's everybody feeling? Are you ready to get very serious in here? You don't sound ready. We had a wonderful, wonderful day with our new Reading for Justice fellows. This mic is not tall enough for me, so forgive me. Uh, but I'm really excited to be here with you all tonight. Oh, thank you, Tiffany. Beautiful. You need an expert for that. All right. so. I am PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program Director. That is a mouthful. We, uh, as part of our program, we have a four, uh, let me go back in time. We have a four decade running program that supports writers in prison with a bevy of free resources that I won't talk about tonight because tonight we're focusing on our second year of a new program called the Writing for Justice Fellowship. It's really exciting to be here at Asian American Writers Workshop tonight because we are funded by Art for Justice uh, just as the Bearing Witness Fellows are funded by Art for Justice and doing quite similar things. Writers who are confronting issues connected to mass incarceration. Tonight is also a welcome to our second cohort of fellows, so I'd just like to recognize them and ask them to stand up and you'll help me give them an applause. We have, excuse me. We have Arthur Longworth, who is currently incarcerated, not with us tonight, but I'd like to give him a round of applause. Thank you. We also have Sterling Cuneo, who is currently incarcerated and can't be with us tonight. We can give him a round of applause. And then we can hold our round of applause of warm welcome for those who are in the room till the end. So we have Clavis Natira. We have, I know you want to clap anyway, C.T. Mashika. We have, you could do a little snap maybe. We got uh, J.D. Mathis. We have Jonah Mixon-Webster, who has mysteriously disappeared, but will be back at some point. We have Justine Vanderloon. 
and we have Vivian Nixon. Now you can give them all a round of applause. I'm not gonna talk too much because you're gonna hear a lot of amazing writing tonight, uh, but I will welcome, way in advance of her appearance on stage, our conversation moderator, who I'm a huge fan of, so I'm kind of nervous. Uh, Victoria Law is a freelance journalist focusing on women's incarceration, uh, co-founder of Books Through Bars in New York City, and the author of, this is why I'm a fan, Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggle of Incarcerated Women. Her upcoming book, Prison by Any Other Name, from the New Press, examines ways in which popular narratives, excuse me, popular alternatives to incarceration widen the carceral net, which is really important. So we're looking forward to hearing from her later. But first, we are going to be hearing from a sound piece from last year's fellow, uh, writing for Justice Fellow, Justin Ovius Monson, who is currently incarcerated. Before I read his bio, serendipitously, Jonah Mixon Webster, one of this year's fellows, happened to answer a call I sent to a number of poets I know saying, I really need to help Justin get some community. He needs folks on the outside to connect with. This is not a mentorship. This is about really exchanging work. And the only person who responded was Jonah. So they co-created the sound piece together. He recorded Justin over the phone and then made the sound art. Um, and then amazingly, Jonah became this year's fellow. So there's this amazing thread through this year and last year through this relationship. So that's what you're about to hear and I'll introduce Justin. And by the way, in the program, if you haven't noticed, all of the projects from this year's fellows are detailed. So I hope you'll read that later. Justin Rovios Monson is a first-generation Filipino-American artist and was the winner of the inaugural 2017 Kundiman Asian American Literary Review slash Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center Mentorship in Poetry. A love poet, he seeks in his writing to catalog the body incarcerated, to misbehave, and most of all, to conjure a poetics of reaching, written by a true poet. He was born and raised outside of Detroit, Michigan and Oakland County and is currently serving a sentence in the Michigan Department of Corrections from which he hopes to, re to be released in 2027. He is, of course, a 2018 Pen America Writing for Justice Fellow. And even though he's not in the room, let's give him a nice warm round of applause. Oh, Jonah. Do you, would you like to say just 30 seconds about the piece that I just introduced that you worked on? Let's do that. Since you were <laughs> we're very formal. Hey, everybody. How y'all doing? Uh, I'm Jordan Mixon-Webster. Uh, so um, I'm sure I really can't say too much more than what Kate said. I know she did a great job introducing Justin uh, in his work. Um, I'm a current collaborator, friend. Justin Monson is like a brother to me now, um, thanks to Kate's. Uh, the piece that we're going to uh, present to you tonight uh, it's a collaboration that me and Justin did. Um, it took three phone calls from <clears throat> the jail, the prison, uh, to create this. Uh, Justin called a couple times, just read from his manuscript as he, you know, uh, made the phone calls, and then uh, I loaded it up into a DJ deck, kind of mixed it up. You know, uh, his manuscript is called American Inmate, a literary mixtape, and so I wanted to kind of keep that hip-hop aesthetic. Uh, and so, uh, without further ado, let's hit it. Where the sound man? Hey, debit call from... Dustin. 
a prisoner at the Michigan Department of Corrections Saginaw facility. If you feel you are being victimized or extorted by this prisoner, please contact GTL Customer Service at 855-466-2832. To accept this call, press 0. To refuse this call, hang up or press 1. To prevent calls from this this call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using GTL. I don't know how to start this shit. Let those I love try to forget what I've made. I don't, I don't know how I ended up here. And you know what? Yeah, actually I know. I called it. I made myself a dumb prophet and cuffed my own wrist like a god who creates and creates too many worlds to wave his hand or whatever he believes he's doing over. Grant the prayers of his reckless children. He gets mad because he gets shown up. <laughs> he fails at the feet of his creation. I know how I got here. When I first came down, they, uh, they tested my criminality by sitting me down in this small room and office. And, you know, and they, they gave me a battery of statements like, if my family gets hurt, I feel the urge to retaliate, and some people deserve to be punished. Uh, that one I laughed at. I was told to answer with agreement or strong denial. Shit, I'm, I must have passed, because my report read low probability of re-offense. Re but man, a sentence is a sentence, and now it's almost a decade with more to go. All my files in a drawer full of other men's histories. So many damn histories, man. You know the stories? Do you know the stories? Do you know who I am? Do you understand what I am? Can I tell you? So I try to sing this broken song and something my tribe. The ones who will one day carry me home. And damn. Damn. I know I know it's a moonshot, but maybe you'll come find me before I lose myself in this jungle. Young blood. Young blood. Young blood. Young blood. Young blood. Young blood. Nothing will soothe you but time. Let go of that dream where you hover your hands over the city, and only sunbeam laughter overflows the alleyways, and death has no place to peddle its wares. I feel you. You wonder what it means. Cancer in the body that wove you. Listen, young blood. You, you got to stick. You got to move. Only way this backwater world won't beat you down. And all them variables you think you find in the fragments, yeah, burn them to ashes and shoot them to the sky. Hell, light them up in a poem to remember where your body vibrates. Stand crane on chill in front of your childhood home, at a slight distance from her kind, how she refuses to sink into the concrete and needs no signifier to build the spring. The steady flow of men in the compound where you build a world, how they fill each room and build mass in a local organ, carry stories from the chemical streets that made them. Take all those shards, young blood, and burn them out of you like bodies in a killing field. Because if you don't, if you don't, you'll cut yourself to pieces. Let me tell you, man, a man with scars is exactly that. A man with scars, who tends a vast field riddled with bones and glass. And then you'll starve, young blood, because remember, there ain't no food out there for a lover who uses his blade to cut breath away from the starved earth. <laughs> This, what we're doing here, you listening, me speaking, it's a trial. The soundscape, as it lives in each of our minds, is our courtroom. 
I am again, like the times in my history, the defendant. You are the judge, you are the prosecutor, and yes, you are the jury. You are my peer and given the right beliefs, my persecutor. Of course, I represent myself, pro se, and I will call upon my witnesses, namely myself. You will walk back and forth across the floor in your suit or your conservative dress, pursuing lines of inquiry, proselytizing the 12 you sitting to the left of you, high up in your chair, lording over your small kingdom. You'll ask yourselves, can you trust this man? Even after he's lied before? Even after he's been convicted twice before? Yes, you must find his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but what doubts have we left alive? Look at his history and ask yourself, what kind of man do I want living next door? This may be your one chance to decide. This is to remind you that I loved you way back. You, with your sleepless rivers and strings to power lines, titans gathered into formations of tender flesh and luminous pleasures. You're always moving. Longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. An apartment building. Two boys. You have one minute remaining. Two boys, different shades of brown. Sun above acting as father. Prayer is two fists arcing. Brown boy with good hair choked by the parentheses of his shoulders. Broken horse. Please don't mistake these notes for elegy. These are the breaks. The summer where I learned of hunger and the absence of pain. Bridgewater. That slag heap hoopty moored in our oak-ridden suburbs. Glimmers of future lives. Sashabaugh, Dixie, maybe. Loose chains for 75-cent ponies. The big homies pushing bags behind the skate park. All the white paint peeling off the divider wall. The chain-link fence we tore back between our cracked pavement and the fairway. The brown out that melted five days. How I did my feather-light body in the tub to keep cool. The water searching me like so many soft lights. The general mind was hollow back then. And I did as I do now, sketch your patterns into the margins of my ribs. This is before, meet me at the corner wash, or your turn to go to the mer- Thank you for using GTL. And this is- And this is- And this is to remind you that I loved you way back, you, with your sleepless rivers and strings of power lines, titans gathered into formations of tender flesh and luminous pleasures. You're always moving, longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. An apartment building, two boys, different shades of brown, the sun above acting as father. Prayer is two fists arcing, brown boy with good hair choked by the parentheses of his shoulders, a broken horse. But please don't mistake these notes for elegies. These are the breaks. The summer where I learned of hunger and the absence of pain. Bridgewater, that slag heap hoopty moored in our oak-ridden suburbs. Glimmers of future lives. Sashabaugh, Dixie, maybe. Loose chains for 75-cent conies. The big homies pushing bags behind the skate park. All the white paint peeling off the divider wall. The chain-link fence we tore back between our cracked pavement and the fairway. The brownout that melted five days. How I dipped my feather-light body in the tub to keep cool. The water searching me like so many soft lights. The general mind was hollow back then, and I did as I do now, sketched her patterns into the margins of my ribs. This was before, and meet me at the corner wash, or your turn to go to the marathon, became slang for the lies we believed. Before the 3 a.m. street lights, the palms crowded with earth tones, before I learned logic and before we should have read Hamlet, 
Lord, we know who we are, yet we know not what we may be. Where I learned to be in the middle of bright islands and dime bags, those whisper-filled trees, the pavement begging to kiss my knees. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thanks to both of you. Um, my name is Daniel Gross. Uh, I'm a, a journalist who's covered incarceration, and I was uh, the editor of A World Without Cages here at the Asian American Writers Workshop. I just wanted to very briefly say a few words about the WITNESS program at AAWW. Um, the next three writers that you're going to hear participated in the WITNESS program, along with a cartoonist, C.M. Campbell, who couldn't be here because he lives in Ohio now. Um, and the writers, the next three writers, uh, were selected both for their words and for their experiences. Um, the lives of all of these writers have intersected somehow with incarceration or with the justice system, the so-called justice system. The Witness Program was a way for them to meet and to talk to and to collaborate with incarcerated people uh, and to write new work for AAWW. Um, and the first person who's going to read tonight is Cristina Olivares. Cristina Olivares is the author of No Map of the Earth Includes Stars, The Chaplet Interrupt, and the forthcoming Botanic America. Cristina. Bless you. Um, thank you to the Asian American Writers Workshop, particularly Daniel, our warm, generous, and meticulous leader, who was the organizer and initiator of our inaugural cohort, um, and tonight's event organizers, Tiffany Tran and Bushra Rayman. Thank you to PEN America, to Kates and her team. I'm really glad to be here tonight with my witness fellows, Sarah and Roshan, as well as Reginald Dwayne Betts, whose work has served as a guiding light for me in particular, and for many of us who are thinking about carcerality, and with Justin Rubios Monson and Victoria Law. Tasked as a fellow in the Asian American Writers Workshop Witness Program this year with producing a piece of writing about prisons and feeling ill-equipped to do so because my own glimpses into this system felt too personal to be objective, I initially reached out to a handful of people to interview, to educate myself a bit more. I'd hoped that by doing so, my glimpses could grow into a fuller view, and that fuller view would lend me the authority or clarity I needed to produce something useful. But interviews revealed a design element. The carceral system prospers, quite literally, upon its refusal to be subject to examination. From the inside and from the outside, what we have are glimpses, and the negative space in between them in which they float seemingly, but not actually disconnected. The essay I ultimately produced, um, from which I'm reading now, is drawn from a series of interviews that operate as glimpses, at times resonant with each other, at times contradicting each other in the carceral system. A 2018 study concluded that nearly one in two American adults has an immediate family member who's currently or who has previously spent time behind bars. If we imagine incarceration as a point of submergence, then we can imagine how the ripples caused by that person's incarceration affects the social web in, around them in ever-widening circles, family, either chosen or legal, friends, colleagues, teachers, religious community, and so on. 
to explore how a person who has not been incarcerated might responsibly take up the work of thinking, imagining, working in, and dismantling our current system. None of the people I interviewed had ever been incarcerated, although each was touched by ripples. I settled on this approach because I am a person who has never been incarcerated, and yet my perspective has been informed by the incarceration of family members, my uncle's long-term incarceration, and my father's brief but repeated incarcerations triggered by psychotic episodes that were, at that time, the only and violent ways to get him treatment and keep our household safe. The conversations I had with folks, perhaps unsurprisingly, revealed how each also has been touched by the system, either by a ripple and or in what Roger Bonera Guard usefully terms carceral experiences, police, court, or authority encounters underwritten by the threat of dividing a person from their freedom of movement or their life, and which can enact a related form of trauma that is similar to, though not exactly, incarceration itself. I'm going to share with you excerpts of two interviews. The first is entirely in the words of the, of the interviewee, Roger. Roger Bonaragard works as program director at Free Write Arts and Literacy in Chicago, running Free Write's creative writing programming, teaching at the Cook County Juvenile Det Detention Facility, and has produced several anthologies of student work. He's a poet, spoken word artist, activist, and youth worker from Trinidad and Tobago and Brooklyn. He says... At FreeWrite, we decided we aren't going to call young people juveniles anymore. No one calls young people walking down the street juveniles. That word has come to mean someone who is the ward of the state because they are badly behaved. It's important that we remind the public that these are children. We say children or young men or young women. When we provide a space for young people to tell their stories the way they want to tell their stories, in a way that insists on their own humanity... And, where, and we do our due diligence to help that work get into the world with their permission. What we're doing is trying to impact public opinion because public opinion ultimately is what drives public policy. In Chicago, the movement and the laws that impact young, impact young people bear this out. Young people say to us, can you write me a letter saying how well I've been doing to show the judge? Can you help me package this writing I've done for my folder? We say yes, 100% of the time, what we have sent on a youth's behalf has been used to positively impact their sentencing guidelines. For example, they might have been recommended to have an ankle bracelet, but because of the documentation, the bracelet gets removed so they can move back and forth. It's important for young people walking into these situations, like court, where they're not being judged as people, to have other people show up for them and say, I am part of the support system in this child's life. I will take responsibility for this child. That label of criminal is just a matter of luck. In the early 90s, I lived, again, this is Roger's words, I lived with two Dominican brothers in Washington Heights. Their cousin had a staff of 150 selling product upstate. That summer, I didn't have any money, so I learned how to weigh and bag heroin, how to load and unload a Glock. In the context of post-colonial post West Indianness, I'm as working middle class as they come. I'm as good boy expected to go abroad and do wonderful things as they come. My material reality put me in a situation where, at least in one particular moment, I could have done 25 years because the police raided them as I was leaving. It's real clear for me that prisons are fucked up. I'm real clear that all of that is a lie. So therefore, all of the labeling and naming that arises from the idea that prisons are necessary are also lies. Okay, so that's Roger. 
The second shorter excerpt I'd like to share is narrative of a conversation with a woman I've anonymized, Azizi, who works as a counselor, originally on Rikers Island and then at a borough jail. Interviewing a Department of Corrections or DOC employee is tricky because the penalty of her exposure is that she will be fired. Two-thirds of what we discussed ended up being too specific to be written about, which felt to me one more small way in that silence undermines crossing between the inside and the outside. Because she used to counsel detainees on Rikers Island and now counsels at a borough jail, I ask her how her work has changed. She says, they're all Rikers, even if they're not on Rikers. She describes the jails she works in as completely toxic and traumatizing to everyone in there, us, counselors, officers, detainees. She goes on, it's complicated to run a system that should not exist. Zizi describes counseling as human work, which should be done by more people, specifically for her, including those who did not attend college. She cites her years of field experience as more profoundly important for her on the job than a degree. It's relational work, and she values the relationships she's forged with the men in her care, despite the significant obstacles to vulnerability posed by the prison itself, by the DOC, and by the trauma embodied by the men. With deep frustration, she described the conflict inherent in her job, working within a program structure meant to reduce idle time rather than support counseling, within an architectural structure designed to warehouse and subjugate rather than support life. Okay. So the work is in progress. It involves five other interviews. Um, I have no easy conclusions except for one, that the only acceptable vision for the carceral system is its abolition. Thank you. I am pleased to introduce Sarah. Sarah Wang is the recipient of a Nelson Algren Award and is a current fellow at the Center for Fiction. She just, finishing, she just finished editing a work for the MoMA PS1's exhibition, Theater of Operations, The Gulf Wars, 1991 to 2011. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Um, this is too high. I don't know how to use this. Thanks. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read a piece, uh, an excerpt of a piece that I wrote um, in response to the experiences um, of, uh, of this um, fellowship this year, um, the inaugural witness program. And then I'm going to read a couple poems um, written by my pen pal, Connie Leong. We all had pen pals um, that was a part of the program. So, I'll begin with my piece. In Manhattan's criminal court one evening, the judge throws out a case involving a man who was arrested for jumping the turnstile. Upon release, a court officer hands him a metro card. The New York County Family Court, Supreme Court, Criminal Court, the Metropolitan Correctional Center, and just a few blocks north, the Manhattan Detention Complex, form a constellation around Federal Plaza. Before the defendants, all men with the exception of one woman, all black men with the exception of two brown and one white, approach the bench in front of the judge while the prosecution reads them their charges. A court officer takes photos of them. One after the other, 
the men open their eyes wide in what I first read as an insubordinate affect for the camera, but which I later learn is for the purpose of retinal scanning to ensure that the person who was arrested is the same person who stands in front of the judge. A 16-year-old boy with his wrists handcuffed behind him sits in the road directly in front of me. I remember Cameron Rowland's show at Artist Space exactly three years ago where he displayed these very benches made by prison labor alongside their core craft invoices. Bench court, six feet, oak, no arms, two, quantity each, $654.50. Net sales amount, $1,309, no taxes. The excess of association's memory, information imprinted within me, new information my brain has yet to process, traumas traveling, uh, time traveling from the past into the present, obliterating the distinctions between them, many temporalities becoming one, the cacophony of all this pushing me to the point of collapse, while I sit there wondering what my body is unconsciously communicating to the other three fellows sitting beside me. My analyst tells me that as a writer, it can only be a good thing for my position to be complicated. The rest is where language fails, where the void has expanded past the edges of meaning making. Two, we are having lunch with young offenders ages 18 to 24 at Westchester County Jail. Each young man, though in talking to them, looking at their babyish faces with features that have not yet reached maturity, one would be remiss to call them anything but boys, is dressed in a crisp green shirt tucked into pressed work pants. In front of each boy sits a bottle of soda and a pile of styrofoam boxes containing two hamburgers, french fries, and a huge slice of frosted layer cake. Abdul and his friend are saving theirs to eat after sundown. It's Ramadan. Abdul, who is my lunch companion around a large table of two dozen boys, confirms my suspicion that this must be an anomalous meal served to impress the guests. Today the meal is free, but usually it costs $20. Later, while talking to two incarcerated women in the day room, I find out that they make $7 a week working in the laundry room. You do the math. The commissioner who acts as the captain of our touristic ship taking us around the facility that afternoon, touts the many programs the jail offers its clients. Calling people who are incarcerated clients gives them false agency that they don't have. The agitation begins as a small irritation in my stomach. Throughout the day, it gains energy and territory, and by the time I am standing on the train platform waiting to go back to New York City, language and emotion pour forth from my body like vomit a poisoned body. Other programs and amenities the commissioner boasts, GED and college courses, art therapy, daily yoga, a beautiful front row view of the Hudson River, basketball courts, cognitive behavioral therapy, group and individual therapy, anger management courses, relationship groups, crochet class, puppies behind bars. Later, after visiting the psychiatric unit, we make an unsanctioned stop to talk to a handful of women who are hanging out in the day room. Knowing these women haven't been prepped for our PR tour, I take the opportunity to engage in some real talk. What results from our 10-minute pit stop with these women is a small geyser of truth 
in the desert of misinformation and favorable public image branding that we have been traipsing through all day. They make this place seem like college, don't they, one woman says. The two women I'm sitting with at a small circular table tells me that there are rehabilitative programs in name only. GED class consists of a stack of old textbooks and an instructor who tells them to figure it out for themselves if they have questions about the material. There is no actual class or lessons. Crochet class, the two women laugh. They throw an old ball of yarn and a bent needle at us. If we want to crochet something, we can't even keep it. They donate it to the hospital next door. If the women want to work, slaving in the laundry room or kitchen for $7 a week, they have the option of being locked in their cells all day long. Art therapy, daily yoga, crochet class, cognitive behavioral therapy, a view of the Hudson River minus a stack of old textbooks and a useless disparaging instructor. $7 a week or sitting in your locked cell all day equals. You do the math. Um, I don't think I have time to read the next part. So I'll just, I'll introduce Connie. Thanks. Um, that's just an excerpt of a much longer piece which will be published in the next months, hopefully. Uh, Connie Leung has been incarcerated since the age of 17 at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility and is serving a sentence of 30 years to life. She attends Marymount Manhattan College through the Bedford Hills College program and recent really, recently received her bachelor's degree. That's new, so exciting for Connie. Um, okay, so I'll be reading two poems she wrote. The first is called Lifelines. If only we could learn to stop looking back for each other. The lines between us never seem to dry. Nothing ever straightforward about it. The way they coil around us like barbed wire that never sets itself into concrete, suspended. Defunct, perverse, so tempting to cross over and over again like the river sticks in search of a lost love. If only we could learn to stop looking back for each other. Maybe one of us will survive long enough to leave impressions without scars. Um, this one is called Autumn in Prison. But your leaves are changing in here, is all the fallen do. These leaves are not from in here. They are nothing like the towering pine that prickles crevices into my sky with its decaying and sullen branches. These leaves are robust and hardy still, sneaking their way onto a stage of concrete like renegade. Prima donnas at burlesque, they dance and flicker, bear glimpses of saffron and sepia, blow kisses from lips a tint of rouge. I am certain no man can recreate. These leaves must be the ones you saw each day as you sat close by painting. They huddled together, didn't they? And danced harmoniously as they fanned rainbows into your sky. I create a story in my mind of how you must have smiled and pressed 
those rose-kissed cheeks toward your eyes. But your leaves are changing in here, as all the fallen do. I watch as one little ballerina races by, unable to keep pace. She collides into a steel wall, half her body in my company, half her body reaching for you. Her slippers tear in the struggle. I whisper to her, you're still beautiful, and tell her you should go. She twirls her head blushing, then exposes her drying heart towards me. She waits for me to come for her. She waits for us to save each other. That's it. And next is Roshan Abraham. He's a journalist, essayist, and poet whose writing has appeared in Vice, The Verge, Pacific Standard, The Village Voice, and more. Roshan reports on city policy, including criminal justice, immigration, and housing. Here's Roshan. Is it easy to take this off or very complicated? Hi, everybody. How, oh, wow. That was like really enthusiastic. How's everyone doing? Yeah. You don't have to perform enthusiasm if, if that's not how you feel. I'm like, um, I like authentic communication. So, Or you could just tell me after if you're not feeling well. Um, OK, so for my um, piece, I. Um, I have been communicating with a man named uh, Ricardo Farrell, who's a uh, journalist incarcerated at uh, Gus Harrison Correctional Facility in Michigan. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit of an essay that I've been working on that's in progress. And, uh, and then we're going to play a sound piece that's uh, um, a poem or two poems that uh, Ricardo uh, recorded on the phone with me. Um, and then I think we have another piece by Quentin Jones, um, who's also incarcerated at Gus Harrison. So um, so the, the beginning of this essay is kind of like, all, I, I was talking to Ricardo and sort of like, um, uh, trying to like draft an essay around the theme of time, um, and I kind of like we were kind of talking back and forth and, and um, trying to figure out how you know to talk about time. So I was trying to um, draft an essay that kind of touches on some of those themes um, and kind of build on you know some of the conversation we had. So I'm going to read a few paragraphs from that. Um, Ricardo Farrell is 62 years old and has been in prison since before I was born. He was locked up in 1981. I was born in 1982. Being caged, he says, has changed his sense of time. His memories of his youth in Detroit are bright and fast, pulsating with life. Everything has slowed now to a snail's pace. Each day, it seems, each day it seems like it's taking forever for that day to go by, he says, of his time at the Gus Harrison Correctional Facility in Michigan. It's hard to describe the same thing over and over, 
he said. It's just sad. Farrell is a journalist whose work appears at Voice of Detroit, among other independent outlets. Most of his family has passed on, but he has a brother who is now 41. They were born on the same day, October 12th, but 20 years apart. Ricardo used to braid his brother's hair when he was a toddler. He was three years old when Ricardo went in. Now his brother has a son and a grandson. Ricardo witnesses these markers of time resigned to the different pace of the outside. The world is steady popping, he says. It's not going to wait for Ricardo. A few years ago, I was reporting on a proposal by the governor of New York to reduce the time allotted for prison visitation. During a rally at City Hall, I met a woman whose father was locked up upstate. We spoke on the phone a few days later, and I asked her what the reduction in visits meant to her. She paused and took a breath. Life is made up of moments and memories, she told me. I cherish the time. What was, what was extracted from this person's family was something unmeasurable, the string of moments and relationships that make up life, the most important, intimate thing we have. Time with one another is difficult. It can be where harm lives, where trauma is incubated. But it can also provide a space for healing from that harm. Where does the time go? In my mind's eye, I picture all of it trapped in some dystopian machine, swirling in a citadel with cascading telescopic sets of rotating towers on a cliff at the end of everything. This, I imagine, is where the possibilities of lives are enclosed. They stretch across days and years, silhouettes threading end to end like caterpillars, the, visualiz the visualization of collective shared days lost. The possibilities are jammed there between chaotic industrial gears and creaking levers. And in one of those endless labyrinthine rooms, I imagine, is a thread we can pull to unravel these machines, crash these towers, take us all home, together. Putting time back into our world allows us to imagine a different world in which this time was never stolen, where the harm, however wrong, however terrible to us, can be seen as a space where questions can emerge rather than end, where we can forge new muscles to think about suffering, trauma, and healing, where we can fulfill rather than defer the relationships we wish we had with one another. It means to use a phrase spoken in the book of Joel to restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. How powerful would it be if this way of thinking was embedded into our ethos? Imagine a planet somewhere out in space where life has evolved much as ours did. Its society has its own starts and stops, its own frictions and social ills. But instead of siphoning out those who've harmed and do harm from the fabric of its society, its people alchemize pain into knowledge. On this world, when problems arise, the painful fissures are seen as spots to be nurtured, as laboratories for healing and solutions. Imagine 20,000 years of time woven back into society. Imagine tens of millions of years woven back into society. If our lives are made up of moments and memories, what benefit would all the people of this world find to having all those moments intact for eons, along with all the failures, emotional lessons, and transformative ideas they bring. If this was a science fiction story, the twist would be that this species lived 
longer than us and created a more heartfelt ecosystem than ours. Perhaps evolved a society that from a distance now looks after our own from some distant galactic heaven looking to guide us home. But we are here on earth making decisions for and about each other. How much more would we, would we all be if we kept our moments together where they belong? Ricardo likes the idea that readers of his articles might not know whether he lives in the community or in prison. It means only his physical form is caged, he says. Words are a way to connect with other like-minded people and live, in the and live in the world where he belongs, to take back, however incrementally, what the locusts have eaten. We are told we can't start over again or turn back the clock, that what is lost is lost. But the yearning to do precisely that, to reverse course, turn back the clock, undo harm, contains in it the energy to act, to rem remedy, to build possibilities for future people. It is a powerful desire to want to reclaim lost time. We should want to return the years the locusts have stolen to replenish the earth with moments and memories. Uh, that's all I'm gonna read from the essay. And uh, thank you. And I think we're gonna play audio from Ricardo and from uh, Quentin Jones now. Thanks. Uh, you can, can you play them both? Okay, so the piece I'm doing is called Black Blood, right? So Black Blood by Ricardo Farrell. Like a pale-skinned vampire lurking and searching our hoods at night, you gun down unarmed black boys and men that you see in sight. You have been lynching us for centuries for no apparent reasons. It doesn't matter to you what time it is or the four seasons. When will you racist people stop shedding our innocent black blood? So much blood is flowing you would think it's a flood. I can imagine what Rosa felt on the back of that bus. It's been over 60 years and you're still discriminating against us. Tell me, America, what you're going to do about all these senseless killings? Or are you more concerned about all the shady Russian villains? You have sold us on auction blocks just for a few bucks. Not to mention how you dragged our bodies from the back of pickup trucks. The Ku Klux Klan bombed and burned a church killing four little black girls. And over five decades later, there's still no justice in our world. You try comparing the murders that's reported in urban cities like Chirac, but you start false-ass wars and put us on the front lines in Iraq. Why try to project us like that bullshit you put on the wire? But, but you don't say shit about dropping a bomb and causing the Philadelphia fire. Your actions demonstrate you don't give a damn about our black blood. You shoot and kill us, then drag our names through the mud. You project the image like you in fear of all black men. Then when we perform for you, we receive a perfect 10. Why the hypocrisy and pretend to support us and be our friend? Knowing damn well deep down inside you don't want us to win. Growing up in the projects, I went out the white establishments back then. And it used to be my gun, but now they fear my pen. You have gotten away for centuries, spilling our black blood with impunity. I wonder what y'all would do when we finally stand in unity, black blood. Okay, Recycled History in America by Ricardo Farrell. If you want to know the truth, just look into my eyes. Like Maya Angelou used to say, still I rise. One of the reasons why some of us are still having nightmares, because the police keep shooting us in the back and hiding behind mares. We as a people must stand up and continue to fight. 
on the souls of our ancestors, this is our inherent right. Why do we keep taking all these injustices lying down? We came from kings and queens that once wore a crown. Our people have went through hell for the past 400 years. They even built this country on their blood, sweat, and tears. In the 1960s, Martin Luther King spoke about having a dream. He preached about black and white folks together on the same team. Just when we thought we were making some sort of progress, they immediately sent an assassin to Memphis to show our regress. Here we are over 50 years later in the same old boat. We need to lean on God so he can keep us afloat. The rebirth of Jim Crow is disguised through mass incarceration. The prison industrial complex is now the new slave plantation. Voter suppression, inadequate health care, discriminatory housing practices, to name a few. History keeps recycling and repeating itself by discriminating against me and you. People keep telling us that we'll get justice before the bench. But in all truth, that's merely an extension of Willie Lynch. One cast member in Just Mercy didn't realize the magnitude of the Alabama case, so he went in the back to sob and cover his tearful face. These devious people keep lying to us, saying justice is equal. But look around you, that lie amounts to the same old sequel. This history in America keep recycling itself at the expense of black folks. One of these days, we're going to wake up and show we ain't no joke. Recycle history in America. Death by incarceration. Here I am, confined to a space designed to erase the last trace of humanity remaining after the war of my sanity. The dark walls stare at me, reeking of the past torture that has been inflicted upon the minds of men fighting not to succumb to the danger of losing self. It's cold in this concrete jungle, and I'm not talking about the temperature. Speaking of the temperament of the overseers overseeing my existence, the ones who labeled my proud display of black manhood as resistance to the systematic annihilation of the divine nature of ourself, Lord and Master. I refuse to let you master me. So this torture that you disguise as justice and use as a tool to break and enslave men will only make me strong. Strong like the smell of urine seeping out of the metal toilet a foot away from my head, which rests on a cold slab of bricks, which I count daily to utilize that which keeps me relevant. Some say it's hell on earth, yet still it gets worse. In the middle of the night when I lie motionless, trying to ignore the hunger pain, Take a moment. I wanted to take a moment, first of all, to say thank you to each person who read, to the voices we heard. Today our fellows met with some uh, Vera Institute policy folks, and when asked what can we do, they said, tell the narrative. That's what changes minds. So that's what's happening tonight. And just because it's heavy to be listening to all this testimony, um, I wanted to invite my colleague, Robbie Pollack, who's the Prison and Justice Writing Program Manager at PEN America, to lead us in a little breathing exercise, if you'll indulge that. Thank you, Kate. Um, this is uh, entirely optional. Sometimes group collective exercises can feel, I really love the way you were like authentic. Yeah, that's, that's the resonance that we're going to do here. But I'd like to invite us all to breathe in on a five count. We're going to do it three times. And when we exhale, if you feel so moved, please exhale with a sound. Let that air come out naturally with a sound if that's okay. Uh, so we're gonna do it in right now. My hand is gonna be the guide. 
One, two, three, four, five, in and out with the sound. Again, in, two, three, four, five. I needed that. I hope some of you did too. Our final reader of the night is so well known in this field, he only has a one-line bio. That's the goal. <laughs> Christina already shouted him out. I hope you're ready to come to the front. Reginald Dwayne Betts is the author of the newly published collection of poems, Felon. He has been a Guggenheim, NEA, and most importantly, in my opinion, a Pen America Writing for Justice fellow. Please welcome, as we call him, Dwayne Betts. I figured out. I gotta tell y'all, I am super into inauthentic clapping, so you could clap some more. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? The thing is, when they lock your ass up, and they, fi- and they, they expressing all that anger, they are free with the anger. So you should be free with the applause. You should be free with the joy. I appreciate being here. I'm gonna confess something that makes me feel really bad. I really shouldn't confess this. In fact, I'm supposed to record all of these things that I do because I'm trying to find out how to be a professional. And so a lot of times I say shit that I have no business saying, and then people remind me of it. And I'm like, I didn't say that. So I'm going to record this. And I'm going to confess this one thing that I have no business confessing, right? So y'all got to work with me on this. I, I wore this sweatshirt today, right? It's a jean hoodie. And it's made by Pusha T, right? And when I bought it, I could only see the front of it. And when it came, it had some women in sort of traditional, like, geishi robes. And I was like, I don't even know how to pronounce the word. And brother, the fact that you just corrected me makes it all make sense. Because, you know, it's like, and I felt really bad. And I thought about what does it mean to, like, culturally appropriate some shit that you have no business appropriating? And then doing it at the Asian American workshop. <laughs> so, so then I took the sweat, I took the hoodie off, and I was like, I'm not gonna wear it. And I was like, I ain't no sucker though. So, how do you apologize in public? So I'm gonna find some way because I like like the hoodie to make it make sense. And I don't know if I paint over the figures. Like I gotta figure out what to do to make it make sense. But I think so much of what we do when we think about incarceration, right? It's like we have ideas. If somebody robs you, you want them to spend a lot of time in prison. I got friends who've been robbed. I got family members who've been murdered. I got family members who murdered people. And then one commonality is that when you've actually suffered harm, you tend to not think rationally. And we don't perform what it means to like admit our flaws and, and, and admit what it means to overcome something that has touched us deeply. And I think about this book that I wrote, which um, I think is a good book. But, but one of the like, challenges of the book is it asks me every time I read it, how do we respond to people who have harmed people deeply? And so um, as I read these poems to you, I just 
hope you think about that apology in conjunction to a book full of apologies that were never said to real people. Night, in the night, night of sleep, her eyes, woman, my woman, I name her as if she is mine. As if these nights that pass for the night belong to us. My nights belong to the memories I can't shake. My night and this woman, my woman, she tells me how it wasn't supposed to be like this. This insight, another Hail Mary, another haymaker. We live somewhere between almost there and not enough. Almost there. Her dreams and all that she lost for me is a kind of accountant. My woman, not my woman, not this night, not these nights. The mind is less mine and more hurts, more hover than anything else. Shadow cloud, or as she says it, you stalk me until I submit it. Love shapes itself into my hands wrapped around her throat. Have you ever loved like that? I'll call your P.O. It's the thing she says on this night when the men I robbed still lingering. A threat to the freedom I imagined she gave when we became cliche, naked, tangled. This is always about me. How violence called to me like my woman moans when she thought all this was the promise of more than a funeral. When I grabbed her like that the first time, her legs held me tight. My woman thinking the cells in my past can make her control this. All the ways I starve. She threatens to call my history back as a constraint on madness. She stared at me once and said she saw her brothers doing life in my eyes. And this night, when we talk to each other, it is in shouts. The quilt of solitary sails I've known confessed that my woman has never been my woman. How ownership and want made me split that bastard's head into a scream is what I'll never admit to her. What she tells me, prison killed you, my love. Killed you so dead that you're not here now. You're never here. You're always her eyes closed at night and I awaken and swear she stares at me. She is saying that brown liquor owns me. Saying that the cells own me. That there is no room for her. Unless she calls the police. The state calls upon her pistol and sets me free. So I'm told you guys have had a long day. I got here a bit late because the thing is, you get out of prison and you still get to be some things that's pretty cool if you're lucky. And one of those things is a father. And they make you do all kinds of bullshit when you become a father. <laughs> no, for real. They was like, come to the Perry Teacher Conference. I was like, I don't really want to be there, but... And my wife is like, so, so this is misogyny. And I was like, what? I just, I, I'm working. And she's like, nigga, you're not working. Like, like you could take a later train, show up. So I was, I was there, parent-teacher conference. I learned that my eight-year-old legit knows how to read and add 48 plus 48. And I had to stare at this woman and act like that shit mattered. You know, I was like, <laughs> I was like, I am really proud of my son, but I don't know if it matters that he could count. <laughs> and um, 
And then, and then I thought that my mom never in life went to a parent-teacher conference. Because when you're a single mother and you're working 55 hours a week and you're sending your five- and six-year-old kid home to take care of himself, parent, teachers don't even ask you to come to the conference. They know what's up. So even in that, it was a privilege of me being able to do it. Vivian. Oh, you showed up. I, look, you know, a lot of times, you know, you social justice people don't like literature. So I did know that, but I ain't want to act like that's why she was here. Damn. So she just here because she a fellow. Okay. If you weren't a fellow, I, I love you too. Whiskey for breakfast. My liver awash in all but dregs of a charred oak cask. Soaked in Bali's amber shadow, as blood dim as a cell in a hole. Survived brackish prison water only to become collateral. The things that haunt me still drown now, friends say. And nearly 50 pounds of brick cube rock gut. Spiritus frumenti. A gallon of whiskey weighs eight pounds and all this becomes a man confessing that he's riven. And I drink. Mornings, I turn sunrise into another empty glass and a dozen angels diving behind the mire I swallow to save my body from itself. All scream, me and even the cherubim, lost in that smoky, dense comfort, lost in darkness. And sometimes, I swear, even God has no alibi. This book is so good that I really literally don't have a playlist. I just flip from page to page. And I be like, yo, this shit right here is dope. I'm going to read this to you. So we're going to test out the theory. I'm going to read this one that's right beside it. I've worked as a public defender. And the most fucked up part is being, about being a public defender is if you represent juveniles. So like you could try a juvenile as an adult, right? But then the court says that because he's a juvenile, his parent gets to stand beside him. Then why the fuck you trying him as an adult? Like, the very artifice is blown up when you force his parent to sit beside him because you know that he doesn't understand what's going on. And um, and this poem was born out of a circumstance like that. For a bell denied, I won't tell you how it ended. And his mother won't either. But beside me she stood and some things neither of us could know. And now all is lost. Lost is all in what came after the kid. And we should call him kid. Call him a child. His face smooth and without history of a razor. He shuffled ghostly in the court. And let's just call it a cauldron and admit his nappy head made him blacker than whatever pistol he'd held. Whatever solitary awaited. The prosecutor's bald head was black or brown, but when has brown not been akin to black hair? To abyss. And does it matter? Black lives, when all he said of black boys was that they kill. The child was beside his mother, and his mother was beside me, and I am not his father. Just the public defender near starving here, where the state turns men, women, children in the numbers seeking something more useful than a guilty plea 
and this boy beside me is withering on the brink of life and broken. And it's all possible because the judge spoke and the kid says, I did it, I did it, I mean, Jesus. Someone wailed. And the boy's mother yells, this ain't justice. You can't throw my son into that fucking ocean. She meant jail. And we was powerless to stop it. And too damn tired to be beautiful. All right, so I'll read a few more. Um, you know, this is the first book that I ever wrote what I consider love poems in it. And um thing like that makes you want to read them publicly because uh, people think about incarceration. And they don't think about love. And I and actually, I'm the thing that I'm most frustrated about is people talking about incarceration as if it's a black problem. As if, just like in mass, there aren't more white people in prison than black folks. And I get all the racial dynamics of incarceration, but I think out ignoring the fact that so many white folks are in prison is the is the is the rope adult. It's like let me make you think that this is a black problem because we already know you don't care about black folks. So um, I'm gonna read some love poems. And the first one is kind of ironic because it's about my son and telling my son that I've been incarcerated. The other thing we don't talk about about prison is what it means to have to tell our children that we've been there. And then we don't talk about what it means for our friends to have to tell their children that we've been there. And so this is the first time I told my youngest son that I've been in prison. Essay on reentry. At 2 a.m., without enough spirit spilling in my liver to know to keep my mouth shut, my youngest learned of years I spent in the box. A spell. A kind of incantation I was under. Not whiskey, but history. I robbed a man. This months before Miles would drop bucket after bucket on opposing players. The entire bedraggled bunch five and six and he leaping as if every layup erases something. That's how I saw it. My screaming, coaching, sweating presence recompense for the pen. My father has never seen me play ball as part of this. My oldest knew, told of my crimes by a stranger. Tell me we aren't running towards failure is what I want to ask my sons. But it is two in the a.m. The oldest has gone off the dream in the comfort of his room. The youngest, despite him seeming more lucid than me, just reflects cartoons back from his eyes. So when he tells me, Daddy, it's okay, I know what's happening to some scraggling angel. Lost from his pack, finding a way to fulfill his duty. Lending words to this kid who crawls into my arms, wanting more than stories of my prison. The sleep he fought while I held court at a bar with men. Who knew that when the drinking was done, the drinking wouldn't make the stories we brought home any easier to tell. So I'll just read a couple more. And then um, we could go drink the night away. I should say, Kate didn't think I was going to show up. No, don't lie. <laughs> the, the, 
The last time I was supposed to show up somewhere for Kate's, it was Mother's Day. And um, and I would tell you the truth. I said I was going to show up. And then my mom and my mother-in-law came to New York to see the Lion King. And I planned on leaving them. And then it just got really, really fun. And uh, see... <laughs> No, and I got sad. No, 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 like, and I got sad, right? Because the thing that we don't talk about about prison is that, like, you lose years. I lost, like, a fucking decade. And what I was afraid to say to Kate is that, like, look, I was in prison from 16 to 24. And I ain't spent the Mother's Day with my mom since I was a fucking teenager. And I believe that we should struggle to end mass incarceration. And I wholly believe in this fellowship. But fuck it, I'm going to chill with my mom today. And like I think what this book is about is all the ways in which we live lives as humans just like everybody else that go unnoticed. It's about these quiet moments when you're trying to figure it out and sometimes you don't. It's about the quiet moments when you do figure it out. And I'm going to read a few more poems and um, and then as I read them, I, I just want to say one thing that I always find myself trying to tell a room full of writers and I always find myself trying to f tell a room full of people who understand prison and, and try to write their life in the lines. It's that, like, we try to write a world into these lines in a way to be the most vulnerable and the most honest for me is to collapse all of the distance from what I experienced to what people I love have experienced. And so when you pick up this book, the eye returns again and again. But the reason why the eye returns is because I want you to be close, not just to the suffering that people have endured, but to the pain that people have caused. And I want you to think that, like, you know, it's funny. People have been in all kinds of wild shit in their lives, but they only condemn people who have been to prison for the worst things that they've done. And I want the book to make you think about what it means to forgive somebody. And you can tell, folks, y'all read this book, and I think Dwayne did all of these things. And I don't even care. Because what happens is what I know is people I know have done all of these things in this book. And I hope, right, that if it's actually an end to mass incarceration, there's like a chance of redemption for them. And so when you leave here and, and you got to figure out which of these things are me and which of them is somebody else, do whatever you make, do feel and believe whatever you, whatever allows you to believe that people deserve another opportunity to live. So I'm going to end with two poems. One is called Confession. And one is a long poem. It's the last poem of the book. And it's called uh, House of Reentry. I mean, it's called House of Unending Push-Ups. Confession. I should say my sons, I, I missed my game today because I was here. So I wasn't coaching my sons to play basketball today. But they won. So since I'm recording this, I want to play this for them. Just this part. We all celebrate the fact that they won. So. Ooh. They were like, so you got to read poetry instead of coaching? <laughs> I mean, then why'd you commit to being a basketball coach? I mean, if you keep reading poems. <laughs> Confession. If I told her how often I thought of prison, she would walk out of the door that's led just as much to madness as any home we desired. She would walk out and never return. My employers would call me a liar and fire me. 
My dreams are not all nightmares, but this history has turned my mind's landscape into a gadroon. I do not sing. Have lived for so many months now that truth harbinger is lost. Sleeping beside her when a memory is holding me tight, as she did before the lies turned everything into a battle. I once gasped and lurched and tried to strangle the pillow she placed beneath my head. Imagining me explaining that to her while still shivering like a panicked and broken man. I stopped believing in God long before then. But that night, when outside there was no light but darkness, I swore something of what inevitable is touched me. My children slept with their light on. I walked to that still-lit room. My son was asleep and his brother draped over his body as if he were a pillow. The way he loved his brother was everything my time in the cell denied me. If I told my woman that, she wanted to know if I thought I deserved all that lost. Her mother wonders why I won't let it go. And hold on to the happiness in his life we have. But how do I explain that outside on nights like this is where I first learned just how violent I might be. That I think of prison because in all these years I still can't pronounce the name of my victim. All right, last poem. Sorry. I was told to read for 10 minutes, and I was like, fuck it. I was on a train for three hours. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I mean, again, I was joking, and then you fucking up my joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey. It's a it's a um, quote by Alyssa Nutting. Is uh she's a, a novelist and a short story writer. She said, "Um, I tell you jokes because it's the only way to share my pain with you. I tell you jokes because it's the only way to make me feel less lonely." House of Unending. The only thing you should know about this. Sorry for interrupting, but the only thing you should know about this is that it's a crown of sonnets. I'm not gonna say the numbers, but it's seven sonnets, and the last line of one sonnet becomes the first line of the next sonnet. And then all of the sonnets are different kind of sonnets. It's a blues sonnet, Shakespearean sonnet, Petrarchan sonnet. But that shit really don't matter. I'm just saying it to show off, you know, but. <laughs> House. Oh, oh, one other thing that actually does matter. So the first sonnet is after Prayer One by, um, Fuck. I can't think of his name right now, and I'm not even gonna try. But um, it's a it's a poet from the 1800s, and the prayer one was a poem that's just defining prayer, right? And um, and so my first sonnet is a poem that's just defining prison. So every phrase is just like a phrase that's capturing how I might define prison with an image. Is um, all right, cool. House of Unending. The center's bouquet, house of shredded and torn dear John letters, upended grave of names, blue moon black kiss of a pistol's flat side. The center's bouquet, house of shredded and torn dear John letters, upended grave of names, moon black kiss of a pistol's flat side. Time blue born and threaded into a curse, Lazarus of hustlers. 
the picayune spinning in the beatdowns, breath of a thief still by fluorescent lights, a system of 40 blocks, empty vows, a handful of purple cranes mills, memories of crates suspended from stairs, tied in knots around street lamps, the house of unending push-ups, wheelbarrows and walking 20s, the daughters chasing their father's shadows, sons that upset the wind with their secrets, the paraphrase of fractured, scarred wings flying through smoke, each wild hour of lockdown, hunger time, and a blackened flower. Of lockdown, hunger time, and a blackened flower, ain't nothing worth knowing. Prison becomes home. The cell, a catacomb, the cages, and the metronome tracking the years that eclipse you. History authors your death. Throws you into that den of lost hours. Your mother blames it all on your X chromosome. Blames it on something in the blood. A styrofoam cup filled with whiskey leading you to court disfavor. To become drunk on count time and child call logic. There is no thing for this thing that you've become. Convict, prisoner, inmate. Lifer, yard bird, all fail. If you can't be free, be a mystery, an amnesic, anything but a voice coming to the humdrum, swallowing a bullet, or even just choosing to inhale. Swallowing a bullet or even just choosing to inhale, both mark you. Pistol or blunt to the head, escorting you through the night. Your yell and omen, the memories, the depression, the dead, and how things keep getting in the way of things. When he asked you for the pistol and you said no, the reluctance wasn't about what violence brings. His weeping and your ear made you regret what you owed. On some days, the hard ones, you curse the phone, the people call and collect, reaching out all buried, surrounded by bricks. On some days, you've known you wouldn't answer. The blinking numbers as varied as the names of the prisons holding on to those lives. Holding on, ensuring that nothing survives. Holding on, ensuring that nothing survives. Not even regret. That's the thing that gets you. Holding on to these memories like they're your archives like they're there to tell you something true about what happened. My past put a skew on how I held her. Unaccustomed to touch, I knew only dream and fantasy. Try to see through that mind and find intimacy. It was just so much and then the yesterdays just became yesterday. A story that you tell yourself about not dying. Another thing when it's mentioned to downplay. That's what me and that woman did. Trying to love each other. What kind of fool am I? Lost and was gone, reinventing myself with lies. Lost and was gone, reinventing myself with lies. I walked these streets ruined by what I'd hide. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. I barely see my daughters at all these days. 
Out here caught up lost in the old cliche, but tell me, what won't these felonies betray? Did a stretch in prison to be released to a cell, return to a freedom penned by Orwell. My noon temptation is now the metro's third rail. In my wallet, I carry around my daguerreotype, a mugshot, no smiles, my name, I'm tithe. What must I pay for being this stereotype? The pistols I carry into the night, my anchor. The crimes that unravel me, my banner. The crimes, the crimes. The crimes that unravel me, my banner. Only a fool confesses to owning that fact. Honesty, a sinkhole. The truth doomed to subtract everything but prayer. My breath turned into failure. Whiskey after prison made me crave amber. Brown washing my glass until I'm smacked. The murder of crows on my arm, an artifact of freedom. Without last, even a jailer. Alas, there is no baptism for me tonight. No water to drown all these memories. The rooms in my head keep secrets that indict me still. My chorus of unspoken larcenies. You carry that knowledge into your twilight and live without regret for your guilty pleas. And live without regret for your guilty pleas. Shit. Mornings I rise twice. Once for a count that will not come and later with the city's wild birds who fire freedom without counsel. I left prison with debts no honest man can pay. Walked out imagining I lapped my troubles. But a girl once said no to my unlistening ears. Dismayed that I didn't pause. Remorse can't calm those evils. I've lost myself in some kind of algebra that turns my life into an equation that zeroes out regardless of my efforts. Alcophobia means to fear pain. I still feel what I've done. Why well, regret this thing I've worn? The center's bouquet. House. Shredded. And torn. Thank you. We're going to quickly move into the moderated conversation with Vicki Law now. All right. Can I call the readers back up? Mm. Come, come. Can we give another hand to everyone for their amazing work? Well, thank you so much for coming, for reading, for taking the time to bear witness to mass incarceration, both people who've been directly impacted by being incarcerated and people who've been impacted in other ways 
I'm going to give Duane a minute to not have to speak or read. But, but your time will come, and then I'm going to barrage you with questions, so be prepared. Um, so Sarah, I'm going to start with you. So your piece, the piece that you read, is very much about bearing witness, which is the theme of tonight. Um, and can you talk more about that, about the being in the witness program, and also what you write strips away this PR, this public relations veneer, you know, that happens when people tour jails and prisons. I've toured jails, I've gone to prisons, and it's a very much this very, uh, everything is nice and whitewashed and everybody is happy and cheery. Um, and Ricardo later, you talk about people performing for these tours. You get to see a Shakespeare behind bars presentation. There's something else that's happening. People get nice food. And Ricardo in his piece from prison also talks about uh, people performing and getting a 10. So can you talk more about bearing witness and then also how your correspondence with Connie Leung uh, plays into that? Um, yeah, I should explain the program a little bit. So. I think it was uh, over a period of five months where um, each of us plus our missing fellow, um, C.M. Campbell, uh, visited various um, sites of mass incarceration like criminal court, immigration court, jails, prisons. Um, we spoke to incarcerated journalist John J. Lennon um, at Sing Sing. One day, uh, we also watched a production of um, Macbeth at Fishkill Prison. Um, and I, I talk a little bit more about this in the interview I did with Penn. Um, but I think I didn't know exactly what would come to bear like um, in these experiences, you know? So I think what one thing that um, I was aware of was like, how can I responsibly bear witness? And then what do I do with that information? And I think a lot of it for me was in like disseminating my experiences first through like conversations with people, people I would meet, friends, um, strangers even. And then later in writing about it. Um, in various ways. And I'm sorry, what was uh, another arm of the question? And how does your correspondence with Connie, who's serving such a long sentence at Bedford Hills, like how does that influence your thoughts on bearing witness or how does that play into that talk about the connection? So it's not just you going into an immigration uh, court. It's not just you going and taking these PR tours of jails and prisons, but also being in direct contact with somebody who's incarcerated without a prison minder sitting there listening to what she's saying or, you know, what you're saying to her. Yeah, well, um, actually, Connie told me that, so she's been incarcerated for 20 years now. Um, she was incarcerated, I think, when she was 17 years old, so um, she's in her mid-30s now. And she's told me that she used to keep a journal, um, but she had to stop writing in her journal because the guards would read it. 
So she says her way of writing now is to write letters every day and send them out to people. And this way she can still write. Um, writing is something that she says keeps her going. Um, and, and just send it out into the world, you know, um, because it's not safe to keep the writing, her own writing. Um, my correspondence with Connie was one of the most important um, and impactful experiences of the fellowship. We connected on many different levels, one being um, our similar histories, both Chinese-American daughters of immigrants. Well, Connie is an, an immigrant. Um, I live in East Harlem now, where she grew up, just a few blocks away from where she grew up. Um, we were both incarcerated as juveniles. Um, and we have both experienced, been survivors of domestic violence. So my correspondence with Connie was kind of like, I feel transgressing this border of, you know, where she was and where I was, although of course that's not something that um, we ignored uh, or pretended wasn't there. But... Um, Yeah, our correspondence was really meaningful to me in this way where um, it's hard to speak of because I haven't heard from her in a while and I, I don't know if she's okay, but um, she's been going through uh, something really intense recently. But, you know, um, I think censorship is also a factor in, like, our correspondence, right? Because... She can't write to me about certain things, um, about what's going on with her. Um, and I'm also really aware of what I can write to her and what I can't write to her. And sometimes when I haven't heard from her in a few weeks or a month, I worry that my letter didn't get to her uh, because of the contents of what I've written. Uh, so it's very complicated in terms of like what is said, um, what is not said. But um, it's ongoing and it's always changing. Like the subject of our letters, um, this period of silence right now. And um, I am always reminded of our different positions in this world um, and also our shared history, which is very meaningful. So I'll just leave it at that. Thank you. Christina. So you took a different tact in your, your piece about bearing witness, and instead of writing about going into these places or uh, corresponding directly with people, um, you interviewed people who are constantly bearing witness to mass incarceration, people who are working inside jails and inside uh, uh, prisons, and you end with a call for abolition. How did your interviews with people who are constantly wearing, bearing witness to the effects of mass incarceration by their day-in, day-out jobs bring you to this? Or how does this influence this? Um, what I read was an excerpt of a really a, a much longer piece. And um, I, only, I didn't say this, and I realized as you're forming this question that I probably should have introduced it this way. Um, but I approached the piece from an abolition mindset, and I only interviewed people who were interested in abolition, um, which complicates their positionality a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. So I think that's the that's the short answer to the question. 
Okay. And then, and then what does it you know, mean then to, I guess, bear witness from an abolitionist perspective? So you're going into these places and you, you know, like you're, you're seeing what they are. You're interviewing people who are in this position that is complicated because you can only do so much from the inside. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, uh, so another thing is a couple of people that I interviewed, mm -hmm. um, one person, her husband had been incarcerated for a long time. She, she started a nonprofit. Um, this is Keona Harris. She's, she's starting a nonprofit um, to that, that uh, works specifically with the spouses or partners of incarcerated people um, to form a sort of like a social and a, like a practical support group. Um, that's both digital and in real life. Um, so sometimes the work of the people that I was speaking to arose deeply from personal experience and then the work sort of came from there. Um, I think that a, a couple of threads emerged. One is that um, the language that we use to talk about things has the capacity to strip humanity or allow humanity, a and I think that um, naming was a thread that became really mm -hmm. important um, for people as they were doing the work that they did and the complicated situations they work in. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure beyond that. I, I, I think people are people, right? Mm -hmm. Like people, people are people, people are, um, highly traumatized by the intersections that America poses. America is racist, America is capitalist, America is founded on a history of subjugation and colonialism and those things um, continue to live and breathe through us. So the ways um, in which many of the folks that I interviewed talked about naming and language or about stripping and identifying um, those threads, both in their beings, in their, in their daily engagements, in their own histories, in their work that they do. Um, so I think that's a thing that came up again and again. And Roshan, you took a different tact, where you basically took a science fiction type of approach to mass incarceration. And so one of the questions I has, have is, it's a two-parter, like how does your corresponding with Ricardo was incarcerated before you were even born influence your writing and thinking about mass incarceration and this idea of time you know and then and then like why why did you choose to like kind of take this science fiction approach to it of imagine tens of millions of years woven back into society right i'll i'm going to answer the second question first is my okay. mic working well okay um so I, one thing is like with, with the numbers, th with like the tens of millions of years, I mm -hmm. was like, so for a while wh while I was writing the essay, I was trying to find out if anyone had calculated the total amount of time that everyone in America has ever been incarcerated. So I emailed the Prison Policy Institute and they were like, no one has ever done that, mm -hmm. but here's, the <laughs> here's like the best data we have and you can like try to figure it out on your own. And so <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, okay, and then I, um, and then I tried on my own to come up with like a really crude calculation, and it was like in the tens of millions of years, um, and that was, I don't know, it was, you know, obviously like really difficult to think about, except in like geological, cosmological mm -hmm. time. 
Um, and yeah. Uh, and then, so in terms of talking to uh, Ricardo, how has it changed my mindset? Um, or how has it influenced the how way is you're it? looking at mass incarceration and the way you're writing about it? And yeah. especially this idea of time. Um, I mean, it was weird at first because like, I didn't know, it was, it's really hard to get my head around, but like we talk pretty frequently now, like we talked probably once a week, like we talked earlier today. Um, I don't know how it's, I don't know how it's like helped frame my idea of time necessarily, but um, yeah, I think just like being in conversation with him uh, all the time has more just sort of like framed my understanding of how time is passing for him versus how time passes for me and you know like just talking and him telling me like what he did that day is like really powerful just like oh I went this and I did this and I went to the prison library you know and just like that informs my um, sense of you know what time is for me and what time is for him more so than the cumulative amount of years that he's been you know, there. Okay. Dwayne, are you ready to talk again? Okay. After, after you've been reading. Uh, so so you, you talk about, um, you pose the question, how do we respond to people who have caused harm? But then you also bring up people have also endured harm as well. So incarceration isn't just this is where we put people who have caused harm. This is also where we put people who have endured harm before and then continue to endure harm um, inside the prison. So can you talk about the role of literature, particularly poetry, at, in, um, as bearing witness to this kind of, to pain and harm and looking at it? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess poetry bears witness, but um, I, I, maybe I'll frame it in two ways, right? I mm -hmm. think poetry does a lot of things. I think poetry allows you to learn how to think about what somebody else has experienced. I think poetry politically makes some experiences that haven't been articulated, like present. The first poem in prison that I read that really resonated with me was Etheridge Knight's um, For Freckle Face Gerald, which was a poem about a 16-year-old kid getting raped in prison. And I'm in prison and I'm reading a poem, and what I knew of incarceration was my own experience and my peers' experience. And I thought that this was new, this is 1996. And I thought that this was some new iteration of suffering. And I read his poem, and his poem is written in the 60s, early 70s, and I realized that this is a decades-long problem. First juvenile that went to prison went to prison in the 1890s. And so we don't think about the sort of history of incarceration in that way. We don't think about the breadth of suffering in that way. But a poem made me think about it, not a historian, not a lawyer, you know, it was a poet. And so that's one way that I think poetry works in this, in this, in this world. But I think another way is, um, I think about um, how we have a lot of people who would advocate for those who are in prison and don't really understand anything at all about the experience of incarceration and everything that they get from, um, excuse me, like everything they read about prison comes from the New York Times, mm -hmm. or the Marshall Project, or the Appeal, or the Wall Street Journal. 
but they've never read a single artist writing a short story. Edward P. Jones has some amazing stories about what it means to be incarcerated, what it means to come home from prison. Mitchell Jackson, you know, Randall Horton, um, Susan Burton. Like, you can make a long list of writers, and I think what poetry does is being a part of that is allows you to know this world that you're trying to deal with. A lot of people will advocate for people who they don't know. They will advocate for people who they can't name. And I think one of the things that, that the poem does is allows you to have better access to both um, knowing and, and naming. And what have responses to your work been, particularly from people who are or have been incarcerated? I tell you, um, I like what you just said about talking to the cat that's locked up and, and, and like how talking to him more than anything else like you you had this sort of profound story about trying to figure out how much time everybody did in prison. And I was like, oh, that shit is cool. <laughs> and then he was like, but man, I think about what he has done individually and what his life is from a day-to-day -day basis. And it lets you know how sometimes the cool, profound metaphor actually tells us far less than we might know if we knew the sum total of one person's experience. And um, I don't know, man, I wrote my first book. I was 26. You know, I mean, I wasn't. I was a writer. I wasn't no fucking advocate. Well, I was an advocate, but, like, I was trying to survive. I was trying to get some credit card debt off my back. I was, like, drinking Hennessy and trying to be an artist and trying to tell something true about this story. And actually, you know, I was like, I, I don't know if anybody in prison is going to read it. This is pre-Facebook. And the interesting thing about Facebook is that it allows people incarcerated to connect with people that's free. Because, you know, people say, yo, he got a cell phone and sell drugs and all this other crazy shit. But for real, he got a cell phone to get on Facebook and find people who he did a bid with. And I had multiple people who find me on Facebook, and then I would hit them up, and I would get on JPay. And these are dudes that I was tight with, but, like, I don't, I don't know where they are, and I don't have a way to communicate with them until they find me on Facebook. And some cats, it took 10 years to find a question of freedom. And I will say that what was interesting is I was kind of not – I wasn't afraid of how they would respond, but, like, I cared about how they respond in a way that I ain't really give a fuck about how other people responded. You know, like, and this ain't even no disrespect for the audience, but I don't write for, like, I don't write for nobody. But I do write for people I did a bid with, though. You know what I mean? If I'm writing, if, if my man was like, yo, that's fucked up, Shy. Like, why the fuck you gonna call me Roger? Like, you couldn't think of a better name? <laughs> and I was like, that's what you mad at? I was like, well, shit, I did all right. But you know, like, like so how, how they responded is they made me feel like I captured I capture some of it, and, and nobody's like, you know, no nobody that I'm tight with, you know, they like, yo, we we building a class around your book. They like, yo, did you did you hear this shit that you wrote? I mean, literally earlier today, my man was reading me some some stuff that I wrote in a question of freedom, and I was just like, damn, yo, I wrote that shit. <laughs> and then I was like, man, I've been home for 15 years, and this motherfucker's still locked up. And, like, he is not somebody who anybody that's free would expect to be building a course around literature and, and social change and justice and, like, self-reflection and understanding that's based on a book from a dude that he did a bid with. So it was just, like, this one thing that made me praise him for what he was doing on his own initiative, right? But it's the one thing that, like, haunted me that, like, like, what the fuck have I done with my life that this is still this thing that he has to do? Uh, so, like, you know, so how have people responded? I, I've, nobody has been like, yo, when I see you, we just got to, 
gotta shoot the fair one because that shit you said ain't true. Like, like nobody mm-hmm. has said that, but um, but people have said things that have um, that made me feel like I got some of it right. Thank you. We have time, barely, 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 uh, but we have time for three questions from the audience, and so I'm gonna like take three questions all at once. And then you all can like, I don't know, thumb wrestle or something to figure out, uh, you know, who's going to answer it. Like, just take one question, you know, like uh, to answer or don't answer all three of them or we'll be here half the night and you have to get on a train to go back to, to your family three hours. And there's also copies of, give me your book, please. There's also copies of Felon in the back for sale, which if you ask nicely, maybe Dwayne will sign them for you before yeah. he gets on the train. You ain't even got to ask. And the truth is, I read the worst poems in the book tonight. I mean, there's some really <laughs> astonishing stuff uh-huh. in there. <laughs> so I want to leave enough time for that and then also to be respectful of everybody's time because we do have this really crappy subway system that does not like to get people anywhere after a certain hour. So do we have three questions from the audience? Yes. Mm-hmm. Hold on, wait for the microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, first, Rashawn, I just want to say thank you so much for communicating with Quentin and Ricardo. You are amazing for that. Um, but my question is, just like you, I, I, I converse with them daily, and I know what it does for my life. But what has it done for you as far as how do you think it will propel you further to end mass incarceration? No, I'm taking two more questions before anybody's allowed to answer. There's a reason why they got me to be moderator, because I am bossy. <laughs> two more. Um, how am I going to phrase this? So I feel like I feel that the movement um, is interestingly split on some level between those who are advocating for decarceration and those that are advocating for abolition. And I'm just curious, how do we, how do we end that? Like, I'm, I'm just curious. All right, that is a very thought-provoking question. Last question. In the front, we have somebody, the beautiful red scarf. Mm. Oh, wait, wait wait for the mic. Um, For Christina and Sarah, um, and this might be relevant also for Roshan and Wayne, but how maybe some of this experience um, made you both confront your experiences around intimate violence and the system and like what longings it might have opened up for alternatives. All right, now you all and thumb wrestle to figure out which one, which question you want to answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the rule? The rule's the only answer. Yeah, answer one. Mm. For one and a half. Yeah, one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. I think what rose in me when you asked that question is um, what Dwayne was talking about when you talk about Forgiveness. I think forgiveness rose for me when I was um, when, the, when I was interviewing, and then when I was reflecting on my family's situation, and then also 
um, I don't know, just in a lot of ways. Like, carcerality touches us in a lot of ways, right? Um, I think I'm going to make a leap and try to come back. And so the leap I'm going to make is that um, part of my family is from Cuba. And I remember the first time I went to Cuba, I was 21. And um, I got off the plane, and I was the first one in my family to go in my generation. Um, the folks that left never returned, and then none of the children went except for me. Um, and when I got to that earth, it felt very familiar, and I um, like wept in the plane, boarding the pl getting off the plane. Um, but then the experience I had on the island for the next two weeks was wild because, um, you know, there's the billboards advertise the revolution. Um, they don't advertise, uh, you know, Colgate or I don't know why that's the first brand that came to mind, but mm. there you go. Um, but and this this is not a glorification of the revolution because it did a lot of damage to my family and to a lot of families too. Um, nation is a lie is I think the what I've what I've come out of this with. Um, but it opened my mind to the prospect of uh, reality looking very different than what it looks like right now. And so I feel I feel a similar way um, around um, the carceral system in the U.S. It feels like an unnecessary fiction that covers up um, the damage that this country very intentionally does to most of us. Um, it makes it makes impossible situations. Um, it forces impossible choices. It keeps us locked in a punishment model um, when we all just really need a lot of different kinds of collective healing. Um, I work as an educator. I worked uh, for the Department of Ed in the Bronx for a while. I worked charter schools wherever, and now I work in a, in a, and now I work in a private school, um, which is effectively a segregated school system in New York City. Um, born and raised in the Bronx, like I, I feel like we just we really like have to do. Uh, better imagining um, in order to get ourselves out of what has been given to us and what we continue to perpetuate and create daily in the violence of our own language, in the violence of our jobs, um, in the violence often of our interpersonal dynamics. Um, but the work of the imagination feels very critical to me right now. I think for me, it's my relationship to mass incarceration is very complicated because um, I have been incarcerated as a juvenile um, and I have also been the victim of a violent crime. And so I don't really have any easy answers. Um, and I, I'm not even sure what my position is really um, in some way. In some ways I do. Um, and the ways that I do is that um, I, I, ha I have seen and experienced the injustice in terms of um, money, whiteness, patriarchy, misogyny, um, systemic factors um, that come into play in regards to mass incarceration. And that to me is very clear. Um, but in terms of your inquiry about intimate partner violence, um, that's something that Connie and I talk about a lot. Um, and that's part of the reason why she is incarcerated. Um, and I meet other women 
who have been, who are survivors of domestic violence and it's almost like this transmission happens that is outside and beyond language. Um, just the other night, this woman came up to me and um, we were in the middle of this gallery and she just held my hand and we just started crying. Um, and that's what I feel like I'm doing with Connie through these letters as well. Um, it's really about understanding and empathy on this level of experience that um, I, I don't know what to do with that, you know? I mean, I know personally I write and I'm gonna keep writing and that's one of the things I can do. Um, but I've, I've just learned so much in my experiences. Um, something important I think for me is really you don't know unless you've been through it. You know, you really don't know. And so one thing I think we can do is, like, not be didactic in terms of forming opinions about someone else's experiences or what should happen. And maybe this also um, relates to the question about this divide between um, decarceration and um, people who are abolitionists. Like, I teach their own. People have different reasons for believing in different things, and I think that's okay, and I think that there's room for all of that. And confusion, and unknowing. Um, so, I'll leave it there. Um, so, yeah, the question for me, it's, I'm glad you got in, by the way, I know you're, you had texted me that you couldn't get, uh, get inside, but, um, uh, yeah, so in terms of uh, what my communication with Ricardo has done for um, my uh, goal of um, decarcerating and or abolishing prisons, I think, you know, on a, on a personal level, it's, it's just like every time I talk to him or get an email or get off the phone, I'm just like, at the end of it, I'm just like, oh, wow, he's really still there. And it's just like, it's so, it just feels so stupid. And I know that like as time goes on and I keep talking to him, it's just going to feel dumber and dumber. And one thing that I didn't mention is like, he's been parole eligible since the early 90s. Parole eligible. He's never gotten a parole hearing. He's never gotten a single parole healing, uh, hearing. Um, and I know in New York, there's, a, there's like an elder parole bill that uh, is getting a lot of pushback. Um, and, um, you know, that was something that kind of got uh, thrown aside during the, the last legislative session. They're, they're still pushing for it. Um, and that would make um, it, uh, basically it would grant everyone a hearing who's over 55. Um, and yeah, and I think, uh, Ricardo said he was, he's also trying to get momentum for a similar bill in, in Michigan. Um, so in terms of just like incremental steps, I think that's really important because it is ridiculous that there's like our elders are, are just, you know, it's insane. Like he's never gotten a hearing. He's like a published journalist, you know, staff writer. He's in his early 60s now. Um, so, like, it's infuriating. Um, 
I don't have, uh, so what was someone said, uh, decarcerate versus abolish? The, yeah, there's a yeah. split between decarceration and abolition. Is and that a split? Because it's like you could just decarcerate until you get to zero. <laughs> and <then there> <laughs> oh, I'm glad we saw that one. Okay. <laughs> and then that's it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the, I just talk about the decarceration abolish position for a minute because I, I mean, I actually don't think it's to each his own. I mean, you know, and I think everything is to each his own, but that becomes like meaningless. You know, the truth is in the state of Virginia, they said that uh, the reason why juveniles, despite the Supreme Court decisions that said that if you have a non-homicide offense, you should get resentenced. They said, well, listen, we have geriatric parole that you eligible for at 65. 1.2% or 2% of people who are eligible get it. Mm. Is that justice? 2016, a judge from the Midwest wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post and said, I really regret sentencing a teenager to 241 years for robbery in which nobody was hurt. You know, in Florida, a, a kid that got a um, home invasion at 14, his co-defendant attempted to rape the woman they, they, they um, you know, invaded her home and robbed her. He stopped that from happening. Ten years later, he was eligible for to be resentenced under Graham versus Florida. She came to the resentencing hearing and said, listen, he made sure that his co-defendant didn't rape me. He spent 10 years in prison from 14 to 24, didn't get a single ticket. The prosecutor asked for 50 or 60 years. The judge said, I recognize that you've been rehabilitated, but I won't give you credit for what the state of Florida has done. I, I just don't think you can, I just, I just don't like you if you think that, like, I literally just don't like people who tell me that they figure that, like, if you be like, well, you know, he did rob the lady. It's like, no, you literally have to pick. And the reason why we have states, we have like 3,000 localities that are making these kind of decisions and that are making them recklessly is because we, we choose not to pick. You have to pick. You have to say, why should people be in prison? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I represented somebody who did 35 years out here in New York. He killed his girlfriend. He was 16 years old. You have to decide if you think he should die in prison. And if you think he should die in prison, you should just say it, and we need to have that discussion. But, but I don't know. I mean, I got friends that's doing life in prison. So for me, the, the question of abolition and decarceration is moot, not because I'm going to decarcerate to zero, but because I don't have time to debate, like, some philosophical question when my homeboy calling me in the middle of a 60-year sentence. I'm, I'm like, yo, how do I get you a lawyer? What's the next clemency petition? How are we getting parole back in the state of Virginia? Like, I, I think the question is senseless only because it's so much work to be done before it's even a rational discussion to be made. And, and like, and maybe some of that work is to say, let's sit down with people who have been seriously harmed and have a real conversation about what it means to like right wrongs that have been done. The prosecutor will be like, listen, dude robbed you. He murdered your cousin. He raped you. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to give him 7,000 years. And I'm going to make you come up for every parole hearing for the rest of your life and relive it. Mm. You want to go to a therapist? Well, well, shit, get a better job. Mm. We, we ain't got universal health care. <laughs> the state ain't got no money to give you insurance. He took your car. Get, you don't have insurance? Well, you should have got insurance. Like, we accept a system mm. 
that provides nothing for victims except time. So I just I just fundamentally think that like if we are wishy-washy at all about the issue, right? Then then that just means that we need to defer so many questions. And and like far too often we get in positions where people like allow us to speak, they allow us to have a microphone, they allow us to express opinions. But it's just it takes too much work, man. People dying in prison. I I want to have the like wherewithal. I was on a panel the other day, and this motherfucker asked my man, and this is my co-defendant. He said, yo, um, can you tell me three things that presidential candidates should be should be talking about in terms of criminal justice reform? And my man looked at him like, you know, I'm going to need a second to contemplate that before I answer. Because my man was like, I am not a policy head. You need to ask the person who knows the answer to that question that question. We say things like the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Sometimes. But sometimes we close to the problem and we need to be willing to defer and say that's a great question. And I know my man has spent the last 10 years of his life working on that issue. And he is the one who should answer that question, not me. And just and we don't do it. We just, we just feel like because somebody gave us a microphone, we should talk about shit that is like beyond our pay grade. And I'm doing it right now. No. <laughs> Thank you. And can we give one more hand to all of our readers? <laughs> <laughs>